So last week, uh, if you were here and we were together, you remember we reiterated the fact that the abundant life that God desires for us uh, comes to us in real time through God's power and God's promises, as uh, Peter reminds us in his book. And uh, of the promises, Peter says they are precious, precious promises and uh, great promises. They're very great promises. I would say, you know, in our nomenclature, we would say the promises of God are priceless, priceless. And uh, putting our faith in God's promises actually results, Peter said, uh, in us taking on little by little God's nature. When we think like God and when we embrace his promises with our heart, we become like him. We see things like him. We think like him. We treat other people like him. We think of ourselves like he thinks of us. And we bit by bit take on, Peter says, the very uh, nature of God. So it's kind of exciting. And uh, not only that, but we also saw last week that uh, the timing is very important, that some promises that God's made are for now, and some promises that God has made are for then, for, for the future. And if we get them confused, uh, we sort of create chaos in our, our, in our own lives, and it can lead to a life of uh, pre- pretense or trying to pretend that life is better than it is because I'm trying to live up to promises that God made about the future, but I'm trying to get them to come true in the present. And so it's very important to understand where that line is between uh, promises that are for now and promises that are for then. And uh, I think on the other end of that, you know, sometimes if we have expectations based on the wrong understanding of the promises that God gave and those expectations don't materialize, we get angry. And anger, of course, is the prelude to a lot of depression. And we have a lot of depression, right, in our uh, society today. And so it's really important to, I think, uh, figure out which promises are for when. So one of these very great and precious, I would say priceless promises that God has given to us is eternal life, that our life will not end at the grave, that God has given us eternal life. Uh, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, you know, uh, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, eternal life. And uh, I just wanted to uh, invite you to focus on that this morning. I think this is an absolutely huge gift, and it's ours for putting our faith in what Jesus accomplished for us. Everybody's familiar with John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have what? Everlasting life, eternal life. It's a huge thing. Now, maybe you grew up in a church and maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you've heard about eternal life and heaven all your life. And uh, you've you hear about it and you're kind of ho-hum about it because, you know, you've become so familiar with it. But imagine, if you can, what it would be like to hear for the very first time that there's the possibility of living after we die. Years ago, I think it was in 1983, um, I had the opportunity to go to the Philippines with one of uh, the missionaries that our church embraced uh, back in those days. His name was Dick Varberg, and uh, the Philippines is more than 7,000 different islands, right? When you go to the Philippines, there's 
uh, over 7,000 different islands. And so we were on the island of Maspate, uh, where there was a mother church and several daughter churches that this missionary Dick had you know, uh, established over the years of his ministry. They're a very uh, effective ministry. And so I had the opportunity uh, to speak at a number of events that were planned for the week uh, through an interpreter, and uh, all these churches had outreach events to the whole island, which is a pretty sizable island, uh, during that week. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't really know. What, I mean, I knew what a missionary was and so forth, but when I actually got there and got to do this, during the day I'm riding water buffaloes around, and, you know, we're hauling logs and stuff, and we're playing basketball with the Filipinos, which was absolutely great because most of them are short, and I was tall, and, you know, I could have a good game, and, and so on and so forth. And so... Um, and then one night, we're having a great time, and then one night, Dick Varberg, the missionary, comes and he says, I'm sending you to another island tomorrow. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. I said, am I not doing a good job here? What's the deal? He said, on this island where I'm sending you, we don't know that there's a single Christian. Okay? And uh, we want to plant a church there. We're into planting churches, and so... Um, what we did a couple weeks ago is we went over to that island, we sent a couple of people from the mother church over to that island, and we told those people that there's an American that's going to come to their island in a couple weeks. And uh, you're going to go do that. And so I said, okay. And um, so, you know, we're going along, and um, the next morning we get up, and we're packing a dugout canoe with uh, supplies, and uh, I'm leaving out a lot of details just because of time, but uh, we put our food in there, you know, and we, we took a generator and a movie uh, uh, projector. And uh, we had the Jesus film, which had already been translated. The Jesus film came out in 1979 and uh, had already been translated into Tagalog, which was the language of the people there. And so we had a Jesus film and we loaded this dugout canoe with all this stuff and then... Uh, a, a Filipino deacon with a big machete, right, uh, and a translator, and myself got into another dugout canoe. We tied them together, and off we went. Paddled all day long, right? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm on the other side of the world. I have no clue where I am, and we're paddling along, and we're passing these islands and whatever. I'm like, if something were to happen, I would have no idea how to get home. I mean, there were no cell phones or anything like that. You know, there's no real communication uh, kind of systems and so forth. I, I confess to you, I remember just being scared, right? Like, wow, what am I doing? You know, kind of thing. Anyway, so we get to this island. And um, these uh, Filipinos are very curious, you know. Uh, they uh, had never seen uh, somebody with hair on their arms, right? And they don't have hair on their arms there. And uh, so all the kids are wanting to touch your fur on your, you know. <laughs> and the adults are wanting to get you into their house because they want to serve you coconut juice or whatever. And it's like an honor if you can have an American actually come into your house and you can kind of brag about it. And so we were told this ahead of time that that's kind of how the, the culture is. And so um, then we, um, you know, uh, looked for an open area, and uh, we found this kind of grassy area, and uh, we announced that we're going to show a movie. And uh, I don't know if people there had ever seen a movie before or even knew what it was. And so we climb a couple of trees and we string a rope across and we get this big bed sheet, you know, kind of thing that we had brought along, hang it over the rope. 
and uh, and we I took the generator and started it. It was so loud I tried to hide it behind a, a tree or a, a little uh, building that was there to keep the noise down. And uh, we started the projector. Once it got dark, we started the projector. And I'm telling you, hundreds and hundreds of people just came out of the woods. I'm like, how does this work? You know, because we were there, and we're show- we start showing this movie, and all of a sudden, just out of, you know, it's pitch dark. The only light is from the movie projector and the moon and the stars. And um, all, all these, I mean, hundreds of people are coming out of the woods uh, and sitting down on the grass and so forth, and it's in their language, okay? And so they start to watch the movie, and they see this man, okay, named Jesus, who heals the sick, who feeds thousands of people with a couple of fish. Filipinos eat a lot of fish. Uh, He's loving on children. He's calming a storm. He's performing miracles. He's teaching the crowd. And uh, when Jesus answers the Pharisees who are trying to trap him, our audience just claps, just like out of clear, just blue. All of a sudden, they just started clapping when Jesus answered the Pharisees who were trying to uh, trap him. And then when the Roman soldiers come in the movie and they go to take Jesus away, uh, these people are now getting angry, okay? Now, I can't understand the language, but they're starting to yell at the screen, okay? (laughs) They're starting to get really, really mad, and they're talking to each other, and they're shouting, and they're you know, kind of, and as Jesus suffers more, the crowd gets louder, and when he's crucified, the, the people are absolutely horrified. Imagine seeing the story of the gospel on a film for the very first time. They're crying. The people are crying. And when the movie shows, uh, you know, the soldiers uh, nailing Jesus to the cross, Every time the hammer came down and that noise came across, the people would scream. Just imagine seeing this for the very first time. And uh, every time that hammer came down, it would just get louder, and then Jesus dies. And there's like total silence in the crowd. Just all of a sudden, boom. And, you know, it's dark, right? There's no street lights or anything like that. There's no lights, just the movie, and, and the moon is out, and... I don't know, somehow the silence was like pronounced in the night. It was silent and it was dark. And Jesus, uh, you know, is then laid in the tomb, and, uh, but the movie's not over. And all of a sudden comes a completely new thought, I believe, to these people. Jesus came back from the dead. Never occurred I suspect to this group of people that that could ever happen. And, uh, you know, the woman come to the tomb and it's empty. And the stone is rolled off to the side. And a couple of angels are sitting there and they're like, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is risen, right? And then Jesus appears. And this crowd of people, I'm telling you, They jumped up. They started jumping up and down. They're screaming and yelling. It's dark as can be. It's in the middle of the night, whatever. And there's just this joyful noise. There's people talking to each other. I suspect they're asking each other, do you think this is true? Do you think this has anything to do with us? Do you think there's really life after death? 
Do you think there could be the possibility of eternal life, right? And I'll never forget this crowd just spontaneously erupting at the thought that there could be eternal life, life after death. And so, we know, right? We've been around this thought for a long time. Psalm 90, the first couple of verses in Psalm 90. Uh, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Our God is an eternal God. In Ecclesiastes, in the book of Ecclesiastes, where we were a little bit last week, and in the third chapter, you know, there's a time for everything and a season for everything. In the book of Ecclesiastes, um, Solomon, who is the preacher in the book, uh, says that God has put eternity in people's hearts. God has put the thought of eternity in people's hearts. But here's how he says it. God has made everything beautiful in its time, Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He's put eternity, the thought of a future that never ends, into people's hearts. But even with that, nobody can understand all that God has done and will do in the future. And so the Bible calls death our last enemy, but the abundant life that Jesus desires us to have includes the gift of eternal life. And uh, in the oldest book of the Bible, right, the book of Job, um, we've gone there too before. In Job chapter 14 and verse 14, Job asked probably uh, uh, the most important question you could possibly ask. And uh, here's what he says. If a man dies, shall he live again? Great question. If a man dies, shall he live again? Um, The oldest book in the Bible introduces us to the concept of immortality. And uh, if a man dies, shall he live again? The whole rest of the Bible goes on with a resounding, yes, 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 death is not the end. You know, there's eternal life. The free gift of God is eternal life. But notice what Job says next in the second part of the verse. He says, if a man dies, shall he live again? And the answer is yes. And then Job says this, all the days of my service, I would wait. I'm going to wait. I know that I'm waiting for something that's promised to me in the future by God, and I have confidence it'll happen. I want to suggest to you this morning that the idea of waiting, I don't like to wait. You don't like to wait, probably. The idea of waiting is connected to the idea of looking forward right? If you're waiting, you're looking forward. You're not looking backwards for things that have already happened. You're waiting for something. You're looking forward. And so Job says, all the days of my service, I would wait until my renewal should come. And uh, next, you're probably familiar with this passage of scripture, but Job talks about it a little bit more like this. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives. This is the Old Testament, right? I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. It's a prophecy of Jesus' second coming. And uh, after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart 
faints within me to think about this. Job is so focused on the future and so waiting for the future and so confident of the promises of God that God has made for the uh, future. In uh, the book of Philippians, uh, the Apostle Paul says the same thing about himself. He's talking about himself, and you probably remember this scripture as well. Philippians 3, uh, 13, he says, Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own yet, but one thing I do. Now, whenever the Bible says, but one thing I do, I'm like, I'm all ears. Like, what is the one thing you do, Paul? The one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I say, if you have eternal life, okay, it calls for an attitude adjustment about the future. Like all through the Bible, people are focused on the future by faith because of the promises of God and the huge promise of uh, everlasting life, eternal life. Paul says, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I am waiting for what God has promised. I am looking forward to the future. Paul says, that's how I live. Now, I think um, all you and I have left to live is our future. All you and I have left to live is our future, right? Our past is past. You can't do much about the past, right? You can forgive the past, but you can't change the past. The present is like a nanosecond. You know, what I just said a nanosecond ago, you've forgotten already, right? It's passed into the past. The only life we really have to live is our future. And here's God coming and saying, I want you to be focused on the future. Be like the Apostle Paul. Forget the past. It really doesn't matter what's happened in the past. And focus on the future. It's such a great thing when we have eternal life. Our whole orientation can be uh, towards the future. You know, uh, I I suggested that, you know, it's so important to uh, make the difference between promises that are for the future and promises that are for now. And uh, one of the great illustrations of that, uh, I believe, is... um, you know, the, uh, I was watching this program, uh, Christmas in July. I, I don't know where that got started, but anyway, Christmas in July, and they were singing Joy to the World. And it always annoys me because Joy to the World was written by Isaac Watts for the second coming of Jesus. If you listen to the words and study the words of Joy to the World, you'll see it does not make sense when you try to apply it to Christmas. Joy to the world, you know, the Lord has come. The earth receives her king. That hasn't happened yet. Jesus, king of the world that you live in. See, it was all written for the second coming, and somewhere along the line, somebody got that mixed up, like, hey, here's a great promise for our future. Let's drag it into the present, except that it doesn't make any sense. It confuses people, and so on. So Peter uh, says the same thing. In um, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 11, listen, let me read this passage. Um, Since these things are thus to be dissolved, talking about the whole earth and, and, you know, it's never going to be destroyed by water again, but it will be destroyed by fire, Peter says. And then he says, since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be uh, in 
lives of holiness and godliness. Now watch, three times Peter says, number one, waiting, waiting, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting, waiting. We're looking forward, we're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness is going to dwell. Aren't you sick of all the evil and all the ways that, you know, what used to be right is now wrong and what used to be wrong is now right? Don't you kind of long for, wouldn't it be great if we could have a, a life where righteousness would dwell? Everybody would be doing the right thing. We're waiting for that. There's going to be a day that's actually, you're not going to have to lock your door anymore. You can leave your keys in the car, you know, and so on. Therefore, beloved, next verse, since you are waiting, waiting, looking forward, be diligent be found, to be found with him without spot or blemish and at peace. Three times, Peter says. What's our uh, attitude adjustment towards living? Like, wow, we are the only people on the planet who have a future, guaranteed, promised to us, eternal life. Man, I don't have to get everything in this life. I've got all of eternity to live. Relax. I don't have to accomplish everything on my bucket list, right? I've got all of eternity to live. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and I'm going to be there, and you're going to be there. So take it easy, and don't get uptight, you know? Uh, Peter says, I think this calls for an attitude adjustment, and, you know, it started with Abraham. Way back, you know, Abraham, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10, Abraham says that he is waiting for a city whose founder and builder is God, the eternal God. And so here's Abraham, and God's making promises to him about what's going to happen in his life and so on. Doesn't happen, doesn't happen, doesn't happen. Abraham's okay. He's chilled out. You know, he's waiting. He's got an attitude. So what are a couple of things? Um, When you have eternal life, here's a couple of things that I think we need to realize. Number one, Uh, The abundant life realizes that even though death looks final and uh, seems like we leave everything behind, it's not true. We have a future. And uh, the life that Jesus brings to us creates a whole new perspective on this life. And uh, I I think it's too bad that uh, people only think about this at uh, funerals, right? Uh, But Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, um, Ecclesiastes uh, says this, in Ecclesiastes 7, uh, verse 1, uh, see, if, see if this calls for an attitude adjustment. The wisest man who ever lived, the Bible says, Solomon says, okay, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. You look it up, Ecclesiastes 7, 1. Now think about that. That's the exact opposite of the way we think. That is a challenge to adjust your attitude to that. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. This is the exact opposite, right? The day somebody's born, we're like passing out cigars, we're having parties, we're you know, celebrating, we're giving gifts, we're so excited that a new person is born. The day of one's death, we're mourning and sad and upset and, and so on. And uh, maybe Solomon knows something we don't know. And then he goes on from there and listen to what he says. <laughs> It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. It's better to go to a funeral than a party. You buy that? Is that your attitude? Right? 
Here's what he says. Uh, For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart at a funeral. All of a sudden, when we're sitting there and we realize life is temporary, all of a sudden we start thinking, well, what about me? And what about my turn? And what's going to happen to me after I die? And I wonder what goes on after you die, and so on and so forth. Sorrow is better than laughter, Solomon says, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. Better to go to a funeral than a party. Who thinks like that? Solomon, what are you talking about? You know, you must have had a bad day. No, Solomon's got something to say there, you know, because, wow, the first hundred years out of eternity isn't hardly a breath, it's a sneeze. A hundred years compared to eternity, it's like a sneeze. And God says, get your eternity squared away. Take the abundant life that I'm trying to give you through Jesus. The abundant life is an everlasting life. Jesus, the Bible says, is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And Jesus, you know, in John 10.10, our theme verse here about, it starts out with the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus has overcome that thief to restore to us the eternal life that God desires for us to experience. And so um, it's so freeing to know that we have everlasting life. A second uh, issue that I think comes when we have eternal life is um, I can live purposeful in this life. This life isn't just, you know, going around in circles and, you know, going to work and making some money and eating some food and going to sleep and going to work and making some money. And, you know, there's more to life than that. In fact, there's a theme that kind of runs through the Bible uh, in many places that says that what we do in this life affects how we will live in the next life. That this life and the next life are connected. And that what we do here with our lives matters in response to what Jesus did for us. Now, uh, there's many places we could turn to, but the book of Revelation you know, gives us uh, uh, some images and some information about what's coming in the future. And a lot of it is pretty unpleasant. It has to do with the judgment of God that's coming upon the world, right? A lot of people, things happen, and people say, well, you know, if God is so great, why doesn't he do something? Well, he's gonna, and he has, in Jesus, done something, and he's gonna do something in the future, and we have a lot of it in Revelation. But did you know, in the book of Revelation, there are seven passages that begin with the word blessed, There's a lot of destruction and a lot of judgment, a lot of terrible things that happen in the book of Revelation, but seven, and seven is the perfect number in scripture, right? Seven times there are passages of scripture that start with the word blessed. Like for example, in uh, Revelation chapter one and verse three, it says, blessed is the person who studies this book of Revelation. There's a special blessing that God will give to people who you know, try to study the future because there's a release about this life when we know what's going to come in the next. However, one of my favorite uh, blessing passages in Revelation is in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13, and here's what it says. Uh, John writes this down. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down, right? Blessed, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Blessed. Maybe a good word to translate the word blessed is just happy. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Holy Spirit, 
For number one, they get to rest from their labors. If you're a Christian and you're living in this life and you're serious about your response to what God has done for you, you're busy, right? You're looking forward to rest. It's like somebody just said to me on the way in, you know, I've been on vacation and now I'm looking to rest from my vacation. And, you know, we try to rest, but even when you go on vacation, you know, here's where real rest comes, right? Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, they may rest from their labors and then watch, and their deeds follow them. Now, this is pretty cool, I think. Your deeds never precede you. Your deeds don't open the door to heaven. Jesus precedes us. And Jesus opens the door to heaven. But your deeds follow you. And I think that's why Jesus said, hey, lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. I mean, I'm really looking forward to heaven, but I don't want to be broke there either. Right? Lay up treasure for yourself in heaven. How we live now makes a huge difference for all of eternity. In God's mind, this life and that life are connected. And so what we do now really, really matters. Uh, Our deeds follow us. Another thing about eternal life um, is that we are told there will be rewards in heaven. You know, speaking about how these two lives are tied together. um, In uh, Hebrews uh, 11 and verse 6, uh, here's what we read. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must, number one, believe that he exists, and number two, that he rewards Those who seek him. Now the rewards, are they a promise for this life or for the next life? Well, there's other, you know, Scripture is its own best commentator, right? We learn to interpret one passage by what everything else says. Uh, In Corinthians chapter 5, we're told about the Bema judgment. It's kind of like, I always think of it like the Olympics, you know, when people get awarded the gold, you know, medal or the silver medal, the bronze medal. You know, it's like a platform. Bema just means raised platform. And there'll be a time when uh, we'll be evaluated. What do we do with the life that God gave us in, in this life? And uh, we'll, you, know, you can read about it in um, uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus talks about it in Matthew uh, 10 and so forth. Uh, another essential uh, thing about eternal life is that, you know what? We get a new body. And uh, the older you get, the better that sounds. And in uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven, here's our word again, we wait, we look forward, we're anticipating, right? Our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. In the eternal life, we're not going to be a ghost. We're not going to be an angel, right? We're not going to be a disembodied spirit. Uh, We're going to be like Jesus. We're going to have a body like him, like his glorious body. And if you think about that, a new body, Jesus' body was recognizable. It was imperishable. It was capable of eating. He touched his friends. Uh, He passed through doors and and so on. Uh, It's going to be great. Jesus rose with a body that has no sickness, no aging, no disabilities, no weakness, no death, so forth. And then another thing about the eternal life is we're told that there'll be work to do. Like some people, you know, they're like, I don't know that I want to go to heaven. That sounds so boring. I'll be sitting on a cloud strumming a harp, and that's it for eternity. 
Well, it's just not true, right? Okay, so um, go back to the scriptures and you'll find out in Revelation, for example, we're called servants and we'll be serving, uh, but our work won't be frustrating. It'll be satisfying. It'll be like working on one of our favorite sports or a hobby, right? It'll be satisfying. And uh, when, when Jesus ascended to heaven, uh, if you think about it, in his new body, he didn't retire, all right? Uh, several things the Bible mentions about Jesus right now is, number one, he's holding the universe together, Colossians 1.17. Uh, another thing the Bible says about Jesus and what he's doing right now, he's Lord of the church. Now, that'll keep you very busy, trust me, okay? If you're Lord of the church, you'll be busy, and the Lord is busy. Uh, He's interceding with the Father on behalf of each one of us, Romans 8. He's preparing a place for us, John chapter 14. I go to prepare a place for you. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So this life is preparation to join the Lord in what he's doing in the next life, just like we join the Lord in this life uh, and what he's doing, and that's what gives our life purpose and meaning. And then one last one. Um, there's a, a, a huge anticipation uh, for eternal life, and a great thought, I think, um, comes from this, is that a great uh, time of worship uh, will run throughout eternity. We will never get tired of uh, celebrating the Lord and what he's done. The energy and the enthusiasm around the throne, when you read Revelation 4 and 5 and you read about you know, the uh, worship that goes on there and the, the gratitude of the people and so forth, there will be a joy, I believe, in heaven that will uh, express itself in worship that's unmatched by anything uh, that the world has to offer. Uh, people singing blessing and honor, glory and power to him, Uh, who reigns, and so forth. And you know why? Uh, Last verse, uh, Revelation chapter 22, last uh, verse of the Bible, uh, last chapter of the Bible. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Why is that? They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. In eternity, we will see Jesus face to face. You know? Can you imagine? I can only imagine what that moment will be like. What will you do when you see Jesus face? Remember that song that was around for a while? Uh, What will we do when we see Jesus face to face? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's so much fun to think about eternity. We're so accustomed to uh, being so busy in the present that we don't give a lot of time to just thinking about what it's going to be like to be in heaven, what it's going to be like to have a new body, what it's going to be like to celebrate, Father, for all of eternity with friends and believers who have gone before. And so, Father, we just thank you that you, it's a gift that you've given us. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Father, adjust our attitudes. Help us to be forward-thinking. Help us to realize there's, there's a life that's way better than this life that's waiting for us right around the corner. And may we, with that in mind, Father, be mindful of how we live this life. May we maximize the purpose for which you have us here and uh, use it for your glory and uh, always with an eye towards uh, where it will lead. And we thank you, Father, for this promise, this priceless promise 
of eternal life. Help us to share it with the folks around us for Jesus' sake. Amen.